This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. We are excited, geeking out a bit actually, to have Jason Moon as our guest today. Jason is the journalist behind the many intriguing long-form projects at NHPR, including the breakout success of Bear Brook, a true crime podcast. The first season of Bear Brook was downloaded more than 17 million times, and the second season seems to be just as strong. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. Jason, I usually start out with asking people how they got into journalism, but since you're our first guest from the radio world, I'll ask a slightly different question. Which came first for you, interest in journalism or interest in radio? Interest in radio. I was the kind of kid in high school. I don't know if this is a kind of kid or if this was just me, but I, somewhere in the high school, I discovered This American Life and, and radio storytelling shows like it. And I probably at that point didn't really register to me that what I was hearing was journalism. I just sort of took it as storytelling. And I just sort of fell in love with the medium at that point. And, and pretty much from the time I was entering undergrad, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I was bound and determined to make my way to a, a radio station somewhere, you know, and, and the, the type of storytelling I was interested in seemed at that point to really only be happening in the public radio space. Things are a little different now. But then I got to New Hampshire Public Radio and I realized that journalism is actually what powers all of those stories, that you, you have to find a story to tell that's, that's important, that's worth being told and worth being investigated, you know, if, if that's the, the route you're taking. So it was sort of, it was sort of uh, I came to it with a love of audio and audio storytelling, and then I kind of learned how to become a journalist after that. Interesting. So how, how did you land a, a job at New Hampshire Public Radio then? And what drew you to New Hampshire? Well, it was the job that drew me here. So I, I had done a number of internships while I was in college and then afterwards at various either public radio stations or podcasts that I was interested in. So I, I, I grew up in Alabama and I, one of my internships was at my hometown public radio station, WBHM, but I also worked at sort of like an independent podcast for one internship. And then after college, I was, I did an internship at StoryCorps, which is a, an oral history project, but they also make a radio show that airs on NPR. When that ended, I knew I just, you know, I wanted to stay in the audio storytelling universe. And so I was just applying all over the country, everywhere, really. And uh, New Hampshire just happened to be the place that got back to me. And that was in 2015. Did you have a sense then that there was an opportunity for this kind of long-form storytelling, long-form journalism, particularly in New Hampshire? No, I, no, I don't think I did. I, I think at that point, frankly, I, just, I was just trying to get in the door anywhere I could, you know, just get a toehold. I think at that point I had done five internships and in those days it was not expected that internships would were paid. So I was sort of at, at the end of my rope in terms of, you know, I can't be an intern forever. So where the heck can I start to get paid to uh, make radio? And that was, that was NHPR. Can you give us a sense of what source of resources are necessary to commit to this sort of uh, project? And was it difficult to sell that idea to your superiors at New Hampshire Public Radio 
I guess um, what I'm asking, what I'm interested in, was this seen as more of like a gamble that would pay off as it clearly has, or was it seen as like a philosophical decision that these are stories that should be told and this is the best way to tell them? Yeah, there's a lot to be said on that topic. And I think probably perhaps different people at different points thought one or the other of those uh, of those approaches was what was driving it. So to take the first part of the question, it takes an immense amount of time and resources to make the kind of narrative series that I've been working on for the past uh, several years. I mean, this second season of Bear Brook, uh, I think from the moment I first started looking into the story to publication was uh, maybe 20 months. And so that's you know, that was about a year of reporting and then about, you know, at least six months of the production side of it, the writing, the editing, the scoring, the mixing, the more editing, and then the more editing, and then the more editing. The figuring out how to tell the story can take almost as long and, and takes almost as much effort as the reporting that goes into it. And so it's not just like I, you know, found the story and then just like sat down with some notes in front of a microphone. You know, these are there's a lot of time and love that goes into the scripts and the mixing, you know, down to like, is the pause between these two bits of tape, three milliseconds, you know, too short or too long or, or what have you. So there's a lot that goes into it. And yes, so from a station perspective, you know, I was like, is this the best use of our resources? I, I think that's a conversation, that's a debate that's, I think it's happening across the whole public radio system, especially at uh, member stations, you know, the smaller stations like NHPR or VPR or, or, you know, there's dozens and dozens across the country. And you get different answers at different stations. You know, some people say, no, that time is better spent covering daily news and focusing on, I guess, quantity of reporting is one way to look at it. But for whatever reason, you know, around 2015, 16, when I, when I first started working on the reporting that would become Bear Brook season one, there was, I guess, just the right sort of the right mix of people here at the station. It felt like the right story. And we decided to take a risk, take a gamble on it. You know, I don't think we ever went in, anyone went into it expecting that, like, it was going to pay for itself. And we, I mean, we try not to think in those terms anyways, you know, is this, does this further the mission, you know, of, of New Hampshire public radio, which is sort of one of the, to me, it's one of the fun things about working in, in journalism and in public media, particularly is that that's the point. It's not about like, can we monetize this? Can we justify it in terms of like how many, how much money it's bringing in? And so, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's a matter of taste for some people as far as whether or not that's a useful uh, form for journalism to take. But it's a long way of saying there were enough people at the station and in the right positions at the station around 2015, 16, that felt like it was. And so I didn't really have to twist anyone's arm at the station to make the first season of Bear Brook happen. In fact, the first person to suggest that maybe this should be a serialized podcast series was actually one of my bosses. So there was already some buy-in at sort of at the higher levels of the station about that. And I wouldn't say it was, it wasn't universal, but there was, it was enough, you know, and it still took, I think three years from when we sort of had started having those conversations to when season one actually came out, partly because we didn't really understand how much work it was going to take, you know, how to staff a project like that. Like we learned a lot about, 
what it takes, what, what you have to invest in a project like that with that first season. I had such a, uh, I was just so blown away by Bear Brook season one and, and I'm in the middle of uh, season two. I remember listening to it as I was uh, ice skating at a local arena here and I had the whole rink to myself and I was listening to it and, you know, I'm, I'm in my earbuds and just circling this ice rink all by myself and listening to this storytelling. And it was, it was just one of those uh, story experiences that you wish every story could be like that. There's a blurred line, maybe even an overlap between storytelling and journalism. I imagine some journalists could feel discomfort with this idea because storytelling is sometimes equated with entertainment, while journalism is discovering and delivering necessary and helpful information. Yet in season two of Bear Brook, you openly discuss this conflict with the listener. Could you tell us how this conflict played out in structuring your storytelling and why you decided to bring the listener in? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, that's a big theme we wanted to point people to in, in season two, that like, look, we're telling you a story. And look, so are these other people it, it, that we're talking about. You know, sort of everyone is doing it. Let's just uh, let's just sort of point that out. You know, and yeah, so it, it made for a kind of interesting writing, structuring, editing process, where we would find ourselves in these kind of like meta conversations about storytelling and reporting, and this kind of layers of that build up on each other. I guess the way it started. Why I started to think about that and to include that as a theme in the in the story was because my first um, exposure to the the case that that season two is focused on was because I heard about another podcast, another true crime podcast that was coming to New Hampshire to cover it, and I had been interested because of this is a little bit of, I, if you haven't listened to the, the final episode, this is a bit of a spoiler for what's coming, but. I had been interested in, because of season one, you may recall that the very end of season one involves an amateur sort of web sleuth helping to identify the victims, partly based on information that she'd heard in the podcast. And it was sort of this like weird moment where like the fourth wall was being breached and art and life were like intersecting and, you know, the feedback loop, you know, it was all intermeshed. and. That got me just thinking about how that must happen in lots of these kinds of cases, especially in true crime context, you know, and if you look at other examples out there, like the making a murderer documentary series on Netflix, I watched both seasons of that show before I started on season two of Bear Brook, And it occurred to me that sort of the whole second season of making a murderer is documenting things that would have only happened because the first season was created. It just seemed like there was another system here that is affecting people's lives, you know, in the in the criminal legal system, you know, this sort of like true crime industrial storytelling complex. You know, it's like if that system like touches your case, sometimes it can make a huge difference. So anyways, that was sort of the original idea for season two. I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this play out in real time and watch true crime media be made and then affect the case it's covering, but be sort of one step further removed. And it just seemed interesting to me because I'd never, I'd never heard anything like that or seen anyone try something like that. That was the original idea for the series. If you've been listening, you'll probably, probably thinking that 
but didn't become this the sort of overriding uh, structure of the whole series. But what it did do is is it created this framing that you were just talking about in your, in your question for the whole series of looking at everything that happened in the criminal justice system and the court system and the police, looking at it through this lens of of storytelling. Because I was sort of primed for that because I was going to be following around another true crime podcast. So it's already thinking of things in sort of storytelling terms. And then when I started to actually like research the case itself and understand what had happened, it just hit me that that was, you know, just sort of different versions of that, of that same process were happening at different from different groups of people at, at very different times, you know, from the 1980s to two years ago when the uh, Undisclosed podcast came to New Hampshire. And it felt like, it just felt like a unifying theme across the whole series. And then of course, if I was going to do that, I have to reckon with the fact that I'm doing that. And so, you know, I just, it just sort of felt like a natural evolution out of that. If, if I'm going to be covering true crime as a force within the criminal legal system, then I have to, you know, turn that lens, uh, at least partially, on myself, while also trying not to make it about myself. That that was a, that was another challenge throughout. But, anyways, very long answer. Uh, but that's that's sort of where the seed started, as far as the like showing you the storytelling mechanics at play. Yeah. So in that same vein, if we're acknowledging that in the storytelling there is at least a partial component of entertainment. How do you balance that with the idea that these are real human lives, real human suffering and injustice, and that's the root of the stories? What makes it worth to tell the stories, meanwhile, these people may be reliving their trauma? I think that's the most important question to ask at the outset of probably any story, but especially uh, for me in, in doing uh, crime reporting or true crime storytelling, you really have to understand why and have a good reason for why you are going to make people relive. For many of them in the story, it's the worst thing that ever happened to them for, you know, depending on what you believe, you know, for Jason, for, for Sharon's family, for Sharon, obviously, the stakes could not be higher for these people. And so... Why do the story is the first question, and then why you know why do the storytelling approach to it? I think the first for me the first question is pretty straightforward in in Verbrook season two. You know, there's the the possibility that the state of New Hampshire and the you know the public agencies that operate on all our all our behalf messed up, and that is a sort of that's a sort of bread and butter uh, kind of journalistic approaches as if you know. Back when I was the health reporter for a number of years at the station, you know, if the Department of Health and Human Services had based the decision on some bad science or something, you know, that's so it's a sort of same kind of accountability reporting in terms of our public institutions. So that that's kind of like the big picture for me, reason to do the story at all. And then to take the sort of storytelling approach that we use, you know, that's ultimately it's a question of taste. But for me, the reason I think that approach can be so powerful is, you know, it's what Adam just said about having that experience, that memory of listening to the the podcast while ice skating. I don't want to be presumptuous, but I would gather that you'd probably remember that story and take its meanings and its lessons or whatever you were going to take from it, you know, lodge themselves much more deeply in you than if I had written the story in a AP style, a thousand word print piece. And, and, and that's just because that's how, that was my experience as a 
younger person when I was first kind of falling in love with audio storytelling. It was, you know, the stories that I remember that like really affected me deeply were the ones that were told in this method. But all that said, there is a huge risk <laughs> in taking the approach in, in overstepping. And I'm kind of like the first person to cringe at, and particularly in true crime, you know, the, the overemphasis on entertainment and uh, the lack of sensitivity to people's trauma and the lack of a big picture reason to even do the story in the first place. It's a very fraught medium and very fraught, especially when it comes to doing true crime. So at the end of the day, I think it's ultimately a matter of taste, you know, what's appropriate, what's ethical as far as that goes. But that's at least, that's how I think about it anyways. Uh, with that being said, I'd like to throw one quote at you that I jotted down during one of the episodes of season two. What you said was, at the end of the day, in a jury trial, the truth is just what 12 people can agree on. And that was something that really, really haunted me for like the rest of the day. And I wonder if you had that, if you had a thought about including that or excluding that from the final script along those lines and, and why you decided to leave that in there, what you wanted people to take away from that moment. Well, thanks for noticing that. That was, uh, I think that, that gets us back to a little bit of uh, the sort of the storytelling frame and kind of an idea that that occurred to me, you know, as I was doing this reporting, you know, that there's, there's these hugely profound questions that a story like this raises, you know, like, it's not just like what happened, but like, how do we know what happened ever? Because the stakes of your answer to that question are huge. You know, they they are, you know, literally the difference between whether uh, we put people into a prison or not, or in other places, whether we sentence them to death or not. And I think part of what I wanted to do with this sort of, it's all storytelling, everyone's telling a story, was to sort of demystify the court system a little bit, because I think it is easy to, and, it, and it's by design that it is, it's sort of, you know, there's, there's this like complexity and rigor to the legal system, but there's also this like aura of authority and power around it, you know, from the robes to the buildings to the the architecture of the rooms and it it can sort of feel like it is this higher plane of human operation but when you look at a case like uh what we if this case at the heart of season two of bear brook you what you realize is it's just people you know it's just people and that's all a verdict is and I, and I, I, I was so lucky that Cynthia Musso, Jason's attorney with the New England Innocence Project, sort of granted me the, the gift of this like comparison to theology. But it's almost like there can be a tendency in, in the in the uh, in thinking about you know the decisions that like courts hand down that they are kind of they have some kind of like metaphysical rooting in the capital T truth, and it, that's just not true, you know. And I think. I think it, it's helpful for all of us as citizens to just be reminded of that occasionally. Could you tell us what the uh, personal cost of this type of reporting is for you? These are dark stories. And it, as you said, it takes years uh, sometimes um, to report on them. Do you have to 
be conscious about the effect that it has on your own well-being? Yeah, I do. Thanks for asking that. It is taxing in, in a in a you know emotionally and and sort of personally. You know, these stories don't just. Um, it's it's hard to kind of leave them at the office. You know, it's it's. I think I even I think we even wrote in the script that I you know dream about these these stories because one one you don't you don't have to you have to dive so deeply into the material so it becomes kind of consuming in that way but also because yeah these stories feel like part of the reason I'm drawn to them is because they feel so important to me you know they feel so urgently important i think especially i think with season 2 and so it's kind of my own fault in that it, you know i pick the stories or i'm drawn to the stories that feel so so urgently important and then i kind of i guess suffer under the the pressure of that for you know a year and a half or two years or whatever it takes me to to do the story and then even then it's not like it's it's not like it's finished you know i mean um there's going to be things happening in jason's case for probably probably for years what do you think the success of projects such as bear brook means for small market local journalism do you think there are any lessons that other outlets should take away Part of me feels like in doing this kind of work, I had a little chip on my shoulder about local journalism versus national, quote unquote, national journalism. And I think, I guess I was, I was always a little bugged that like, I, I have had a sense of uh, feeling like um, you don't have to be in New York City to do a great piece of audio documentary. And why the heck are all the good ones coming out of like two cities? in this country and you know they're missing they're missing so much you know in the ways that like people who live in you know live in anywhere in the country are going to have blind spots about other parts of the country and just not cover stuff and so i don't know how much that translates to like other mediums or other kinds of local journalism but that's how i've kind of thought of it it's it's like you know there's nothing stopping us you know and here's the proof of concept that like at a station, you know, a small station like NHPR, if you uh, invest, you know, the right people, give them the time they need, the support they need, you can do this. You know, you don't have to go to the New York Times or Serial or Gimlet or, you know, or even NPR down in Washington, D.C. to do this kind of work. So, I, yeah, I don't know how much that extends, that idea extends beyond podcasting and, and like, uh, narrative miniseries like this, but that's just because I don't know as much about other kinds of other mediums. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I hope it is a proof of concept for local journalists at small places to reach big audiences and have big impact, and that that's not just the province of the big coastal newsrooms. So what advice would you give a smaller newsroom who's looking to start a project um, in this in this scope of journalism? Well, to do this kind of work specifically, I would encourage you to do the the research ahead of time to figure out, you know, what you actually need in terms of the staffing for it. Because we sort of learned a lot of those lessons the hard way when we were working on the first season of Bear Brook. As I think I mentioned earlier, you know, it was it was almost three years in between the the first bit of reporting I did on the, on season one and when we actually released an episode. So that's like that's not ideal. 
<laughs> and um, there were long stretches during those three years where I was convinced that it was, you know, we were never going to finish this thing. And, you know, my little pet project was going to die a quiet death in some dark corner of the station. Yeah, that's my first piece of advice is just understanding, like, who do you need to have? Like, how many people does it take? What's a realistic time frame? Because the other side of this coin is I think it's possible to be sort of too eager and a bit naive in terms of trying to launch a narrative series like this, you know, like, oh, we'll just give a, a reporter a microphone and a month and what else do they need? You know, you can get free audio editing software and it's not that hard to record yourself. And, but obviously that's not, that's not how it works. So I guess that's my advice for like stations or, or like management or people in charge for how to begin to think about that is call us. You know, I'd be happy to talk to people about like what it, what you need to do this and some pitfalls to avoid and that kind of stuff. What are you working on next? Is Are you able to tell listeners what they might next be able to expect from you? Well, like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's, there's going to be developments in the Jason Carroll's case for not in the immediate future, but probably later this year. I would expect another episode maybe late this year. And as far as like another uh, big series, I'm helping with my colleague is working on a big one that will hopefully be out uh, this summer, which I can't say too much about. But I'm also always looking for the next one. So if you know someone's listening right now and has an idea, please feel free to reach out. We were just commenting in our newsroom that the number of unsolved murders that we have in, in the Lakes region is rather alarming. But I don't know if it's uh, different than any other part of the state. Julie, do you have any other questions for Jason? No, just if there's anything that we didn't cover, anything else you'd like to share? No, I don't think so. I, if I could, I'll just say uh, thank you for inviting me. And I think it's, uh, I support the the project that of what you guys are up to. I think this is a cool idea. So thanks for having me be a part of it. Jet, we're, th- we're thrilled to have you join us. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.